This is Inside the Writer's Head with Emma Carlson Byrne, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2018 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Emma Carlson Byrne. Hello, I'm Emma Carlson Byrne, this year's Public Library Writer-in-Residence and the host of Inside the Writer's Head. My guest this month is Gwenda Bond. Gwenda is the author of many novels, primarily for young adults. Among others, they include the Lois Lane trilogy, which brings the iconic comic book character front and center in her own YA novels, and the Surf American trilogy about daredevil heroines who discover magic and mystery lurking under the big top. She and her husband, author, author Christopher Rowe, also co-write a middle grade series, The Supernormal Sleuthing Service. I accosted Gwenda at the Books by the Banks Festival in October and somehow got her to agree to let me interview her. Gwenda, thank you for chatting with us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. You didn't have to accost very hard. <laughs> uh, well, you were, you, were, you were delightful to, uh, to chat with, and I'm looking forward to us chatting um, now. There's so many angles to your writing that we could discuss, but um, the podcast, Inside the Writer's Head, is about the writing process. And um, often our listeners are aspiring, serious writers, um, people who really want to do more with writing, um, but who might not yet be sort of thoroughly in the business. Um, so let's focus a little bit on process. Yeah, this is my favorite topic, so oh, yay. Oh, me too. Well, we can clearly uh, yeah. talk for days. Um, so I'm often asked, as I'm sure you are, how I got started in writing. Um, so tell us mm. your story. You have an MFA, which is a master's in fine arts and writing, and this is like an arts degree, similar to one someone might get in dance or in painting. Did that degree launch you straight onto the path of, quote, successful author, or did you take some detours on the way? So I took a lot of detours before I ever got to the MFA stage. Uh, I was one of those obnoxious kids who knew I always wanted to be a writer, and um, so when I got to college, I majored in journalism because I thought that's how writers made money. But I really always wanted to write fiction. Uh, and then in my senior year of college, I took a screenwriting course and the professor was the best writing teacher I ever had. Um, and he just really was the first person who basically said, hey, yeah, you're a talented kid. Because we all hear that, right? When you write, when you're young. Um, if you finish things, people are very impressed, no matter what the quality is like. Right. Uh, and so I had gone to an arts program and I had written bad angsty poetry. And he was basically like, look, this is good, but it could be a lot better. and It's not good enough. Um, and that was really something I needed to hear. And so that was when I became disciplined about it. Um, and so then I wrote screenplays for a few years and kind of got to the decision point of, am I going to keep doing this or am I going to like mo and move to LA because that really is, is basically what you have to do if you want to do that for a living. Um, and then I had sort of this moment of realization that I did not want to move to LA <laughs> and because I like it here and I, from, is that right? Yeah. Yes. And 
um, a lot of writers that I knew who did that for a living were miserable, whereas most of the book writers I knew were pretty happy. And, and books had always been my first love. Um, and so I, and, and this was also right at the time when, um, the, it was a really exciting time for young adult books. And I think part of my problem was it took me a long time to figure out what kind of stories I wanted to write. Uh, and so I started reading like Libba Bray's first novels, MT Anderson's first novels, Thirsty, um, and, uh, Andrew Ossian, uh, there were just so many exciting Holly Black's first book had just come out. So there were all these exciting things and I just felt this immediate resonance like this is what I want to write. But I had not really read much children's literature or YA growing up. And so that's how I decided to get the MFA. Um, and in the meantime, I had developed a literary blog and had done some writing for Publishers Weekly and had, you know, a little bit of a of a freelance nonfiction writing career going um, that I that I, uh, you know, I think as writers, especially when we're starting out, we tend to be very negative or imposter syndrome about our accomplishments. So I basically kind of wave that off as like, oh, that's just a random thing. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, why were people even letting me do that? That was cool <laughs> and led to a lot of other opportunities. And and also was a way, you know, at the same time I was in grad school getting a craft lesson and reading all these books that I missed the first time around. Um, I was also getting kind of a lesson in the business from interviewing publishers for Publishers Weekly. Um, so, you know, that was kind of my informal training. But in the meantime, I had a day job. I mean, I was always writing and I would get up early. I would write during lunch. Um, and so I had a day job for 17 years in state government and I uh, wrote most of my books that way. And it took me four books. Um, and actually I did get in my agent. I signed with my agent the last weekend of my graduate program with my, with a completed manuscript that wasn't my first completed manuscript. And that book didn't sell. It's in a drawer somewhere. Uh, uh, the Frankenstein's monster that it is. And then it took another, I think it was three books that I wrote after that before I made my first sale in 2012. Okay. Um, and then all the other projects that I have written though, did end up getting placed somewhere after after that but um it definitely was not i was not the overnight success like <laughs> school of thinking it's just i worked for a long time and had been steady and so i had always written one or two books a year um and so i was lucky that i had taught myself how to sustain that pace um and that really helped i think with how quickly you know, 2012 is not that long ago right. and I'm on my 12th book now. So, um, I would love to, I, you know, I'm hoping I can get to the point where I just write one book a year, but I actually really enjoy working. So, um, that's kind of the story of, that's kind of, that's kind of my story. Gwenda, that is all, um, really interesting. Um, I, one interesting thing, uh, that I'm sort of picking up on as you're talking is something we hear a lot on Inside the Writer's Head, which is just how hard and how long you have worked. Um, that is just so characteristic of um, just everybody that we have spoken with. It's just that writing is work and you have to do the work. You have to, <laughs> you can like, you know, talk about query letters until you're blue in the face, but really you have to get words on Absolutely. paper. Absolutely. So many words too. Yeah. And, yeah. 
people don't want to hear that that's the easy part, right? Like, Absolutely. Get, I, mean, it, I mean, it's still hard to sell. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But I think like getting an agent once your work is at a certain level is 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 relatively easy compared to the getting your work to a certain level. I'm very okay. jealous of people who write first books and they're publishable. <laughs> right. And then they just sell. But, you know, they are, I think they are the rare exception, even among the also even smaller group of, you know, quote unquote, successful authors who are published, you know, and are yes. making a career. Um, those, I feel like the much larger group um, of those authors are people who have written, you know, worked at day jobs for many years, written yeah. many books that have never sold and just yeah. always keep writing. They just keep plugging. Um, I asked Jean um, Luen Yang last month, you know, what advice, what is the advice that he would give? And he told aspiring graphic novelists in his case that they would have to give up all of their tv and most of their friends um, <laughs> and what he meant was Gee. you really have to devote a lot of time you just it's just, well he has kids i think he he probably has a like kids and a family i just i just have a husband and dogs right um but i i mean he's not he's not wrong like you know i i feel like i have a lot more balance in my life now that i'm able to do this full time yes. Um, but for many years, I never, I mean, to take a day off, a weekend off is very rare. Um, I did always try to take nights off because I think it's easy to get burned out. Um, but one thing I will say just to your point is I think part of what's so difficult when you're trying to break in is one of the, one of the most important skills once you begin to be a published professional writer is working with editors and having editorial revision, make your work better. And that is really, to me, the most important skill for long-term career success. Yeah. But when you're starting out, you're expected to produce a manuscript that is at that level of quality for the most part without a professional editor and for those of us who do have to do a lot of revision and who don't write very clean first drafts right. at least especially when i was starting out i didn't i feel like that is a, a part of the learning curve that if your process is that you need to revise a lot like you know just really think about getting the best critique partners you can because they're not because the the, the thing is publishers are looking for people they can develop but when you sell that first book I mean, it's just, it's just a weird oddity. Like, right. The editors see crappy first drafts all the time from writers that they work with, but they have to see that you can stick a landing, um, so to speak, before you get that first opportunity. And so I think that is what makes it take so long for a lot of us, because it's just a very hard thing to do without somebody helping. Absolutely. It's right. It's like its own form of unique torture. Uh, you've got to kind of, you've got to try to find that editor relationship somewhere else that is not with an editor at a house, mm-hmm. whether it be your critique partner, however, within yourself, however you're going to yeah. do it, but you're going to have to find a, a, a pretty good substitute to get you to that point. Yeah. And the, and the exceptions are people who do do a lot of self-editing in their head up front. And so I think those are the people that you see sell their first books and, you know, in, in, in people who have an easier time breaking in because it's just, it's a diff, it is a difference of process. Right. Only we could bottle that. <laughs> and steal their brains. Right. <laughs> Wenda, you are, let's talk a little bit about your own books. Um, you've written so many. Um, they often feature, one thing I noticed as I was looking through your, just, you know, your vast live personal library of books that you've written is that they often feature strong female protagonists, women or girls, 
Um, and mm -hmm. I, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is a subject that you feel strongly about. Can you tell us about writing strong female characters? Was it a conscious decision for you? Was it something that just happened? Um, I think those are the stories I'm drawn to and interested in. Uh, I think uh, I prefer like uh, the term complicate. Like I, I want to see girls in all their complicated um, splendor. You know, I think a lot of times um, in pop culture, although it's getting better, women have sort of been reduced to the role of quote unquote, the girl, right? The love interest, the person, and especially teenage girls, I think are, are put in this catch 22 where they're both shamed for liking romance and having crushes and romantic feelings. Uh, and also reduced to that role a lot of times in stories. Um, and so I kind of want to reflect the sort of teen girls that I know and women as well, who, have a whole lot of things going on, right? Um, one of the things I hear a lot from my readers are that they appreciate that the romance is, if there is a romantic angle, because I love me romance too. and relationships are really important to right. me, right? Like, I mean, it's a it's a significant part of most people's yes. lives. Yes. Um, and it is only trivialized, like when it's for right. women, like we don't talk about men singing love songs as right. trivial, right. you know what right. I mean? Um, so there's a there's an element of sexism there. Um, but I think it, you know, what they respond to is that I almost always write girls who also have big dreams and who want something. Um, because that's that's, you know, that is a core story that I that I know from my own experience um, and also kind of allows me to live out other lives. But I basically want to see I want I want girls to see that they can that they are, you know, in all, I want them to see the multifaceted natures reflected yes, in books. Yes. And you wrote a trilogy featuring Lois Lane, um, a strong woman Yay! by any, by <laughs> any measure. She finally got the spotlight <laughs> in your books. So let's talk about that. Um, tell us a little bit about this specific trilogy, um, how you conceived of the topic, if it was you know, conceived or if you were asked to write it. Mm -hmm. um, and tell us what it was like to work with such an iconic existing character and how writing about Lois Lane was different than creating your own character from scratch. Well, uh, it was a dream gig, obviously. Um, I uh, still am not quite sure. I was approached about it. Um, by Capstone, the publisher, they asked my agent if I'd be interested in writing a young Lois Lane uh, origin series um, with elements of mystery. And I'm like, what's the catch? <laughs> like, do they have some terrible outline? Is right, this going right. to suck? Or will I have freedom? You know, because I didn't want to be the person who got that opportunity as a huge comic nerd and longtime fan of Superman and Lois Lane. I didn't want to I didn't want to screw it up. Right. I didn't want to be the person who who messed up that that spot that chance for her to finally get a, a real vehicle and and actually they came back immediately and were like no we actually would like these books to be good and you'll have plenty of freedom uh, and so it all happened very fast i mean very fast like i now know um my experience is totally atypical and it never oh, wow. happens like this so i always give yeah. that caveat uh, because i had only published a few books and they had done okay and gotten some attention i always joke that i was the person they could afford <laughs> <laughs> they're like we think you're going places kid we think you're right, going right. places 
We'd love to have someone who's already yeah, right, got there, right, but right, we'll exactly. take you. On your way up, but maybe not at the top <laughs> yet, which is why we can afford you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, whatever the reason, uh, I feel like it, it, I've always joked about how I feel like it's the job I've been training for my whole life uh, because it did mesh so well with my background. And like everyone who knew me when I told them, right. it's like, oh, my God, like, right. you know, this is perfect for you. And so it was a really good fit. But obviously there is something um there is something i mean it's very exciting obviously to get to work with a character that has been around for so long and that so many people have deep right. relationships with um and love for i mean anytime you can go look for fan art for something and find it for something that you're writing before it's written it's a little daunting because you know if the fans don't like it they're gonna right. be super vocal um and also you just don't right. want to disappoint people because i you know I, I and so at the end of the day i think i kind of approached it thinking about what are the core characteristics um of this character and to me, that's how I kind of approach any sort of work I'm working in somebody else's world or, or properties is kind of first identify like the big components that without those things, it's not going to be that it's not going right. to work, right? It's not going to be, it's not going to feel right. Um, and then also think about the things that would make people the things that if they're especially with like Lois and Superman like the periods where they weren't written that right. well right. uh you know like when when is Lo, when does when is Lois's character sort of undermined and to avoid doing those things um but at the end of the day you know I'm a fan of the characters too and so I just sort of set aside as much of that outside pressure as possible and yes. tried to write um the story that I would want to read. Um, and those books were so fun to write. I mean, really, honestly, it just Lois Lane as a character is such a gift. Yes. Um, I always say this, I've never written a character um, who creates plot and, uh, and drama as effectively yeah. as Lois does. I mean, she's sort of, it's just, it really, I would joke, but it's true. I could always just stop and be like, what would Lois Lane do? And something would happen. And that is not yes. true of every yeah. character. Um, so yeah, she's a real, she's a real pleasure, right? It sounds like you were having to walk the line between the idea that you don't own this character. She belongs mm -hmm. to the fans, all yeah. the many, creators all of the other writers who've written before her and that at some point you had to did have to put that aside to, to actually write it and tell yourself all right i'm not going to look at anything else i'm going to focus on the character and the story and i will kind of own her for this for this period that's the only way i can write it i got to think about her and what she would do and i've got to put aside everything else is that is that right absolutely um, you know, I do I definitely, it's funny because whenever I talk that you put it that way, because you're, you're so right. Whenever I talk about those books, I talk about my Lois, right? right. Like it's, um, because, because there are a bunch of different Loises throughout the comics period, um, mostly written by men. Oh, funny. <laughs> like most things before about 50 years ago. Strange. Yes. Well, and, and, and comics in particular yes. tends to, tends to have this issue, but the Superman mythos has so many female um, fans for all sorts of reasons. You know, it's an ensemble story. It does have this really strong dynamic woman at the center of it. Um, yeah, right next to Superman, who's sort of inextricably linked to him. And so um, I do feel like I do 
I do feel like men don't understand sometimes some, there are a lot of guys who've written Lois Lane really well. Don't get me wrong. Um, and who get her completely. But I do think there are some, sometimes that, um, they don't understand necessarily how important she is to so many Superman fans. Right. Which is why, and you were, you know, a, chosen as a woman and you've got this trilogy chosen right this trilogy in which she really is front and center she is just um she's doing her own thing there and she's not second to um superman no although i do really enjoy writing clark too like he's great he's a great character them together i really wanted to do the recast their origin story though so that she is one of the because i do think the reason that they are such a great couple is that she is his hero and i wanted to bring that even forward into their teen years and have her uh impact his development you know him seeing like what could i do with these with what i am and these powers that i have uh, and he sort of in a way learns from lois how to right wrongs you know how to step up when you see something that needs to be righted that's very cool so to switch gears slightly um many people who listen to inside the writer's head as we mentioned before are just are starting to make lives for themselves as writers or perhaps take themselves mm-hmm. seriously as writers. So, you know, you and I know that the daily life of a writer is kind of like no other job. Um, it's, <laughs> it's its own beast, for better or for worse. So tell us yes. a little bit about your daily life. You've told us that you no longer have a day job, though you did for years. So how do you structure your day as a writer? Do you work with a <laughs> daily word quota? How do you divide your work? Do you sit down and write whatever you feel like that day? Do you allow yourself coffee breaks? Tell us a little bit about what your day is like. Um, well, it just, it sort of depends on where I am in a project. Um, and I, I will say, funnily enough, I've only been full-time since the beginning of 2016. Okay. And uh, and it took me a good year to, it, it really is like getting a new job, right? right? And, and you're also so burned out. You're so not used to ever having free time that you kind of freak out a little bit. Uh, and so the, the um, actually the, one of the projects that I'll tell you about at the end of the thing, Dead Air was the first idea I had like when I when I I had started working on a book and it wasn't working and I was basically like I've quit my job I don't have any ideas <laughs> I'm, you know, it's all right. over this we're gonna be living again. in the we're gonna be living in the gutter right. Right. <laughs> and, then, I'm living my and then I had this idea <laughs> right and then I had this idea which it ended up it, it's gonna be like a it's about a podcaster and it's gonna be a podcast and a serial um, but it took a it took a while as most things do. Uh, so my day now, when I'm writing, um, if I'm if I have a deadline, um, which like right now, I'm writing the first Stranger Things tie-in novel, and I which just we want to hear started. so much about. A little later. <laughs> I can't say <laughs> too much, but but it's a it's a prequel, um, and so it depends. Like as, while I'm waiting for approval on the outline, you know, which I have now, or when I'm working on the outline, I might. Um, have a bunch of research material. I might go down to the library and pick up a bunch of books on like MK Ultra and experiments that the CIA did that were kind of the jumping off point for the show. Um, and so I might spend a lot of time doing those kinds of thinking. I might spend a half a day putting together a playlist of songs from the 19, 
1969 or 1970. I know I'm getting close to writing when I put together a playlist for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to it while you write, is it for you? Usually, yes. Or I listen to it as I'm walking around. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm kind of a podcast addict, and but when I'm deep in a project, I try to listen more to music so that I'm thinking about the project still when I'm. Um, right. because I solve a lot of things on dog walks. So I, my day really is, I, I will do, um, you know, I always have multiple projects and different statuses. I get up, I'm, I'm, I'm F around on the internet for a while, <laughs> uh, which I shouldn't do. I should just Join start. I probably, I probably will just start writing first thing again, because that was always really helpful for me. Um, but I do try to hit a rough word count because I will know, and I try to set my deadline so that I know uh, if I'm not going to make a certain number of words every day, mm-hmm. I'll still get there a few days early. So I have time to go through it and turn it before I turn it in. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I will shoot for like, I don't know, a thousand, 2000 words a day in a couple different sessions. That's very high, um, Gwenda. That's a lot of words. <laughs> I can tell you that's a lot of words. Well, I can only do that if I have a, a really good outline. Yes. And for me, it's like, a, it's also like walking away and doing other things. Like it's not all just sitting there. And, and I think some of that comes from the train. I realized that actually I had a pretty effective process when I was juggling a million things. And so what yes. I've done really in the last six months is gone back to that process, nice. um, which is to write in concentrated bursts. And then, you know, in between, not beat myself up about the fact I'm not sitting and writing six to seven hours a day, right? As long as I'm getting what I need to get done. But for me, like, it also varies on the part of the project. Beginnings are really hard Mm -hmm. for me. So that's always a little bit slower and a little teeth pulley. I love middles. And then by the end, I could be writing several thousand words a day. Um, they'll need a lot of cleanup, but you know, like I do feel like momentum picks up for me as I'm, as I'm writing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am also an outliner and a daily word quota sort of, um, fanatic, which is how I control the panic. I don't know about you, but when you mentioned, um, that you sometimes do better with, you know, more sort of pressure, a lot of things, I mean, I have found, I have found Mm. a little guilt and a lot of panic to be a very powerful motivator absolutely (laughs) i would always rather have a deadline i could sit i could work on it i mean i have a book that's halfway done right now that i'm writing on spec um and it should be done if i had sold it to someone yeah exactly oh there is nothing like a deadline staring you in the face and your editor in your head you know like where is the manuscript to just get your butt in the chair and get those words on the page it is Well, tell us about working with your husband, Christopher Rowe. Um, You're the Uh co-author of this, your series, The Supernormal Sleuthing Service um, with him. And tell us a little bit as a writer about working with the co-author, how you guys made the decision, um, your process, how you divide the work up. What do you guys feel that the two of you can bring to a story together that you might not be able to alone? So uh, I had this idea. I've always, I I love hotel detectives, which is a weird thing to say. Um, And I had this idea. I was like, I really want to write a hotel detective story. But like, sadly, I don't see how that could ever be marketable. 
And then I woke up one morning and I was like, oh my God, it could be a hotel yes, for monsters. It. And I, w- and I, so I, I went out and I told Christopher and he immediately started spitballing, like, you know, a, a scene that we actually ended up cutting, although the character stayed then. And he's, I always joke, very close to his inner 12 year old. And I, I knew that he would keep me from like angsting yes. things up or like, you know, um, but also like we are uh about as different as two writers can be uh in our individual work but also in our processes like i'm very much a planner christopher is very much a sits down um you know works really intensely for a concentrated period um and then and then may not write for months you know sometimes um and so we really uh and he doesn't like to talk through a plan but he's gotten but he's good at it like i make him do it um so we basically would just we'd talk through what we were gonna write the next day and then i would get up to go to work uh for the first book and i would write my 500 words and then christopher would feverishly write his 500 words where i left off (laughs) before i got home from work that afternoon and uh and so that's really Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's how we wrote the first draft. And I was really burned out when we started that book. And it was such a joyous process. Now, because we just kind of jumped in with both feet, we did end up revising that book a lot. And it took a couple of years for it to sell. Um, and like the market shifted in, in interesting ways. Like at first we were told like, well, this needs to be like, you know, stretched over a trilogy. And then at the end, we got to go back to what we wanted to do, which was kind of standalone mysteries that did not, you know, where if we wanted to write more books, right. they'd be about the characters um, and the world, not necessarily the same story, um, right. which is my right. favorite kind of series to write. And so that's really, I mean, we, uh, Christopher is better at drafting than I am. Like he's faster and cleaner. So, uh, and he also is just really good at doing the fun middle grade stuff. Um, and also we try to crack each other up. So those books are, um, are very much like a conversation between us and he would maybe do more of the heavy lifting when we're revising on if we have to add a new chapter or scene, um, you know, I'll tell him what to write, whereas I'll do more of the line editing and tweaking things in the text because I'm better like at that. So we just self. kind of try to play to. Like you've got another, uh, you've got like a, you know, another better self <laughs> with you who like, you know, does the things you can't do. It's so a well. collaboration. Collaboration <laughs> is the best because you write half yes. the words and you miraculously somehow have twice the, the yes, output. Yes, and all the fun. Um, I really love cl- I- <laughs> great i really love collaborative projects and it's so funny because we have friends who were like i'd never write with my you know husband or whatever but i mean for us it worked out it worked out it works out well so well gwenda we are almost out of time but i would love for you to tell us what you're working on now you and i were talking a little bit before we um got into the podcast and um, you were telling me about some really exciting projects that I was getting excited about just hearing about them. So tell us about what's on your plate right now. <laughs> so uh, the first thing that's up is the project I mentioned that was the first idea I had when I went full time. It's called Dead Air. It was just announced. Um, you can go to uh, a web page called Serial, S-E-R-I-A-L, Box, B-O-X, dot com. 
uh, and look for it. Uh, it will start coming out in August. And this is kind of a unique format. So I'm obsessed with true crime. Um, and I uh, think that serial storytelling obviously works really well. So I came up with a fictional murder and a girl who investigates it, who is a podcaster here in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, it involves the horse racing industry. I'm sure lots of your listeners who've been to Kentucky would recognize things in this story. And so I wrote it with three, a team of two other writers, Carrie Ryan, who wrote The Forest of Hands and Teeth, uh, and Rachel Kane, who has written a million books and is amazing. Uh, and so we each write episodes, uh, weekly episodes of, of, that you could like read or listen to. It's audio and ebook uh, each week um, over like your lunch period oh, or while great. you're driving to work. Uh, it was a blast. And so that will start releasing on August 1st. I will actually tweet out a discount code so people can get a discount. Um, and it also, the other cool thing is we also wrote the podcasts that the character is doing in the story. And those are going to be released separately. And, um, they cast a full audio voice actors to do all the, and are doing the full production of it. So I think it's going to be really unique. Um, I'm very excited. That must have been such a gas to hear the actors voicing voicing your words. Oh my God, that's so exciting. I got to help cast them. They're actually, they're, rec oh they're recording this weekend. Um, I got to help cast them last week. And it's amazing. Like those animation, the people who come from oh, animation can basically do anything with their voices. <laughs> like they could do 10 that's different amazing. characters and you never know they're the same person. We cast eight we cast like eight people for like 20 parts or something. Um, it's going to be pretty wow. cool. I think. <laughs> oh, that and, sounds incredible. and so, uh, so that's coming soon and it will be also, you'll be able to get it as a, as an omnibus kind of ebook when it's over and hopefully the print rights will sell to somebody. Um, and then the other thing that was just announced, which will be coming out next year, is uh, Stranger is the Stranger Things, uh, the first Stranger Things novel, which is going to be a prequel about Terry Ives, Eleven's mother, and her time with MK Ultra, uh, and it's going to be set during 1969-1970. I'm writing that now and super excited about it. Oh my gosh, that is such a great era to write about. Such great characters. <laughs> It's the pressure. I'm sure you're feeling a little pressure <laughs> to deliver to the fans, but all it was sounds yeah. like it would be similar to Lois Lane in that you'll need to, you know, yeah, uh, just kind of shut that off there, but also yep. make it your own. Yeah, totally. You just have to shut shut out the outside voices and do the work, and everything Absolutely. will work out fine. Or it'll be a terrible failure, and everyone will hate me forever. <laughs> and that is the usual writer's mantra: This is it. This is where my ending comes. When I look back, I'll see that I never should have taken that Stranger Things project. This is what we say to ourselves during the hours alone at our house. Oh, no, it's totally true. Totally true. Uh, Gwenda, thanks so much for talking with me today. This has been so oh. much fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. For the Cincinnati Public Library, I'm writer-in-residence Emma Carlson-Byrne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. You can meet Emma at various events throughout the year or at open office hours on the third Saturday of every month from 10 a.m. until noon at the Coryville Branch Library. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writerinresidence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. 
Thank you for listening.